Father, we ask you now to bless the study and the meditation and the worship that we continue with in your word. Father, don't for a minute let us enter into the college classroom, but let us stay in the place of worship. And as each word is read from the scriptures and considered and thought about, Father, we continue to lift you up for the marvelous things that your word has told us and that your Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. May we be clear-minded in this and be with us this morning as we study a difficult passage, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 23 this morning. 2 Kings, sorry, not chapter 23, chapter 2, verse 23. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. It's a short story, three verses. You might find a little interesting. It's talking about Elisha. Elisha has at this point just succeeded Elijah. He has seen Elijah go up in that fiery chariot we talked about last Sunday. He came back and crossed the Jordan by taking Elijah's mantle that's now his, holding it and striking the Jordan with it and saying, Where is the God of Elijah? And the Jordan parted for him and he crossed over. He came into Jericho and purified bad water there. And now, now we see another miracle of Elisha. Verse 23. Then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! (laughs) When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. He went from there to Mount Carmel and from there he returned to Samaria. What do you do with that? It was a third miracle of Elisha, although miracle may be a little too nice a word for it. Again, the Lord had already parted the waters and the Lord had had sweetened the water of the Jordan and then around Jericho. But, But now, Elisha is accosted by a group of young lads, the Bible tells us, at least 42 of them, and they start making fun of him, calling him baldy. And so he brings down a curse, again, in the name of the Lord, and out of the woods two she-bears charge them and tear them to bits. Bears are capable of moving at a rate of up to 35 miles an hour, which is about 15 to 20 miles faster than your average frightened child. The Alaska Science Center ranks the following as the most likely reasons for bear attacks. You might find this interesting. Surprise? Curiosity, invaded space, predatory hunting, hunting while wounded, carcass defense, and provoked charge. And in light of the rising frequency of human and grizzly bear conflicts, the Alaska Department of Fishing and Gaming has advised hikers, hunters, and fishermen to take extra precautions and keep alert of bears while in the field. The department has posted the following advice. For you sportsmen and outdoorsmen and women, pay close attention. We advise that outdoorsmen wear noisy little bells on their clothing so as not to accidentally startle any bears. We also advise outdoorsmen to carry pepper spray with them in case of an encounter with a bear. It's also a good idea to watch out for fresh signs of bear activity. My father-in-law was going fishing one day, this is a year ago, two years, a couple years back, and as he hiked in to go fishing, he was hiking on his way out, and right in the middle of a path, there was a, a brown bear of some kind. 
who was the boy, several weeks ago I talked about him when we got back from Israel. He was the boy who was uh, picked up a, a Purim package and it exploded. And there's a picture of him on the front here. Um, and it's all about that, but that's not the article that caught my attention. The one right above it. The word multiplies in atheist nation. China is set to become the world's largest producer of the Bible. China. I sat at a Michael Card concert 20 years ago where Michael Card said, and when he's talking about getting Bibles into the hands of the Chinese, he said, who knows, maybe someday they'll be getting the Bible to us. The article says in Nanjing, China, the factory looks like it could be any plant in this export-driven nation. Hundreds of Chinese workers huddled over loud machines, turning out the largest orders for customers at home and abroad. But what they're making might surprise you. Bibles. As Tibetan monks grab headlines protesting the lack of religious freedom under Chinese rule, a booming Bible industry is turning the world's biggest atheist nation into the world's largest supplier of the good book. I just love how God works. It says, Chairman Mao might have said our God is none other than the masses of the Chinese people, but here at Nanjing Amity Printing Company, China's only state-sanctioned Bible printer, little time is wasted in pondering the contradictions of a metaphysical mismatch. Chairman Mao said our God is none other than the masses of the Chinese people, and now the masses of the Chinese people are clamoring for the word of God. Why? Because it's true. Because it is true. It is the place to which we are invited to go that God has put into our hands. Lots of books are written by the hand of man to tell us who God really is or what God really is like. Only one book in all of history was written by God himself. God breathed for our instruction, for our understanding, and that's his word. Only one reveals to us the true nature and the true character of the one true God I had a nightmare Friday night Henny and I were talking about nightmares Saturday morning because he had a weird dream and he was sharing that with me and so I, I said I had a nightmare too I was standing up Sunday morning at the bridge and we were reading the verses for, for the sermon and I got about halfway through and I read a verse and I had no idea what it meant and people were looking at me like what does it mean and I'm looking at them like I have no idea and I woke up in a cold sweat it was horrifying <laughs> Regarding the story of Elisha, this is one of those passages where you can come across, and I did, I read it, and I thought, okay, what, what do we do with this? How do we deal with this? Forty-two lads torn apart by two she-bears. You might, again, wonder why the Lord chose to include this in the Bible at all. Listen, if we read this story, thinking that we'll better understand the personality and the character of Elisha, we will miss the entire point. It's not about Elisha. It's not about him at all. In fact, between Elisha and Elijah, Elisha is the kinder, gentler prophet. You'll find as we study on, Elijah was the public prophet. Elisha is the private prophet. Elijah went out before the nations, and Elisha, well, he went in relationship. Most of his miracles, though many, many more than Elijah, most of Elisha's miracles are for one person at a time, or a small village, or a couple of people here and there. And his nature is gentle and tender and kind, not the kind of wrathful prophet that you would... I mean, this is an Elijah move here. Curse you, young men, and here come the bears. That's something you'd expect out of Elijah, maybe, because he was tough and, and a rough prophet, but not Elisha. 
This is not a story about Elisha. It's a story about our Father God. And it's a story I believe here to help us understand a little bit better who our God really is. Well, what kind of God would call for the mauling of 42 boys who are just goofing around on a hillside? Well, there are some things you probably should know. We'll make this attack more bearable for you. Well, after all, we wouldn't want to hide the truth. Hide. Bear hide the truth. Okay. Sorry. This could get a little grisly. Hang in with me. First of all, considering the young lads, if you are reading this story in the King James translation of the Bible, the word young lads is actually translated little children, which makes it even worse. The two she-bears came and tore apart 42 little children. Oh, man. I mean, that's one that I might read to my kids as they continue to make fun of my quickly receding and escaping hairline. A bunch of silly children messing around on a hillside poking fun at a bald guy. Who of us did not poke fun at an adult or two when we were kids? I mean, come on. Maybe you didn't even out loud, but in your head you had to think about your parents at some point and say, idiot. (laughs) I mean, I I love to catch my kids in the act of sticking out a tongue or rolling their eyes. It just cracks me up because I did the same thing. And I called down the bears and mauled them, you know, and it's all good. I was thinking about um, back when I was in youth ministry, and I may have shared this with some of you before, but uh, a youth pastor, the the junior high pastor who worked under me at this church, he he called for this mall game and took all the junior hires to the local mall, and he set them loose, and the name of the game was Where's Baldo? And the whole idea was he had a picture. Now, he didn't tell the kids this. He had a picture... And it said Baldo on it, and it was a bald caricature that he was going to post somewhere in the mall. But he sent all these junior hires out to find Baldo. So what happened is within 15 or 20 minutes, junior hires are all over the mall finding every bald or or thinly haired man in the mall and asking him, are you Baldo? It just wasn't good. It wasn't good. That was one of those times where I just kind of stepped back and let him take the heat all by himself. Excuse me, sir, are you Baldo? Now you might read this again and think a bear mauling seems a bit severe, but the Hebrew word here translated children or lad is na'ar. Na'ar in the Hebrew is the same word that's used for Isaac in Genesis 22, verse 5, when Isaac was 28 years old. He was the child of Abraham, Na'ar. It's the same word used for Joseph in Genesis 37, verse 12, when Joseph was 17 years old, Na'ar. He's a teenager. It was used for David's fully grown brothers when the prophet Samuel came to anoint David at Bethlehem, 1 Samuel 16:11. Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children, Na'ar? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. So the young lads on the hillside of Bethel were not innocent children playing in the field. In fact, because, they were, because of where they were from, and because of what they were saying, it's more likely they were sent. And don't miss this, they were sent to taunt and undermine the new ministry of Elisha. This wasn't just a, a local gang of hoodlums. Now I'll explain more about this. But the very things that they say indicate we're not talking about little children here. Three important things to note which I believe are relevant for our day. How's it going, Cosby? <laughs> number one, you may want to jot these down to help consider the story a little better. These boys, number one, were raised on rebellion. Beth El, as we've talked about before, 
was a rebellious place. The location of this curse and the subsequent attack is very informative to us. Elisha was on his way up to Bethel. He's coming up the hill, heading into Bethel, which was originally called Luz. But way back in Genesis 28, and I can read this to you if you want to turn there, you can. Genesis 28. The Bible tells us that Jacob had a dream at this place. Beginning in verse 10, it tells us Jacob departed from Beersheba and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head. And he lay down in that place. He had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching up to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. The God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall be all the families of the earth, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I believe that's a larger promise, by the way, to all the people of Jacob, the people of Israel. Verse 17, he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than, than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel house of God however previously the name of the city had been was Bethel was the house of God this is the place Elijah is climbing up to when these boys accost him but we need to understand the house of God went through some sick and subtle renovation over the years and thanks to the life of Jeroboam the son of Nebat Bethel now was not a house of God but it was a house of idols in fact it was downtown central idolatry for all of Israel Jeroboam the son of Nebat this first king of Israel you could call the architect of idolatry because every single king following at some point the Lord says man you have followed in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat this would be Jeroboam's claim to fame over and over first and second kings you'll hear and read the kings did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat which he made Israel sin it's been nine kings since Jeroboam before Elisha's prophetic ministry. But back nine kings ago when Jeroboam was the first king of Israel, he brought back golden calf worship in Israel, saying to the people of Israel, it was the golden calf that brought you through the desert. It's the golden calf that got us to where we are. And so he set up a golden calf, unbelievable, in Bethel, and then one up north in Dan. And in so doing, he made Israel to sin. I need to remind you of something, and this is very important. For Israel, the golden calf was not another god. For Israel, the golden calf did not represent Baal, or Ashtoreth, or Molech, or Shamash, or any of the other gods of the nations. The golden calf for Israel represented Jehovah God. Well, so why is that such a big deal? Because it was still idolatry. Any God that becomes a representation, any picture of God other than what the Bible clearly tells us about God is idol worship. 
It is idolatry. The golden calf was a false representation. Let me say this very clearly. Any physical representation of God, aside from the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture, is idolatry. John 1.18 tells us no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the prophets, to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. But the house of God, Bethel, became like some of the houses that you've seen in the news lately in Missouri that have been sliding down the riverbanks and into the river. You see, the house of Bethel has slidden right down the slippery slope of the river of idolatry. What did Jesus say makes a house slide into the water? Matthew chapter 7, verse 26, he said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. You want to fall? Pursue God outside of the Bible. And I guarantee you, you'll fall. Because any other God except what we have right here is idolatry. Amen. All that to say, Bethel was the center of religious idolatry in Israel. The very location is significant to the bear attack. And these were the bad boys of Bethel. These were the sons of Bethel. These are the boys raised in rebellion in this place. And watch what they say. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. What are they saying? Gang, they're ridiculing the rapture. Second thing to note. They're ridiculing the rapture. What rapture? Elijah's. Word at this point, remember, Elijah had just seen Elijah go up in the fiery chariot. And already his own disciples, the sons of the prophets, don't believe him. They go for a three-day search looking for the body of Elijah. It's got to be here somewhere because what Elijah's saying can't possibly be true. That Elijah was just caught up? Come on! And after three days of searching, they find no body of Elijah. But word has gotten back now to Bethel. Come on. <laughs> Rapture. Whatever. And so here come these boys, and they start saying to Elisha, Go up. Go up. Hey, Elijah went up. Why don't you go up too? Baldy? As I mentioned last week, I've seen at least a couple of reputable newscasts making light of evangelical Christianity's claim of the rapture. And I guarantee you're going to see more of it. Making fun of it, poking holes in it, claiming it's a, it's a silly theology, ridiculing the rapture. And we shouldn't be surprised. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? The one clear biblical sign of the last days will be a rise in vocal mockery of the coming of Jesus Christ. You're going to hear it more and more. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, however, tells us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And understand when Paul wrote that, he fully expected himself to be raptured alive. 
The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And when I read that verse to you now, even though it's 2,000 years later, I read, hey gang, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. What, Rick, you're not expecting to die? No, I'm not. And if I do, so be it. I still get to be raised imperishable. But I am expecting the imminent return of Jesus based on, as we've talked about many times, so many things that we see happening in the world around us, we should be able to read the signs of the times as we live in what Chuck Missler calls the times of the signs. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Rick, you read that Thessalonians verse all the time. Yeah. You know why? Because the very next verse says, Comfort each other with these words. We need to be reminded constantly of where we're going and of what is about to happen. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul writes, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And my friends, this is not exclusive theology because this promise is for anyone and everyone who is in Christ. Oh, okay, so you're, you're saying that you have to be in Christ to get this. Yes. So be in Christ. That's the promise and the guarantee. All we have to do is put our faith in Jesus and no one is meant to be left out. In fact, Peter says the one reason God has delayed so long in His coming is His patience to see people saved. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. What happens if they don't come to repentance? The attack will come. If we don't come to repentance the attack will come. Number three they were ripped into reality. These boys were raised on rebellion. They ridiculed the rapture and now they are ripped into reality just as the word of God declared they would be. Listen to this. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 21. The Lord says, If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field which will bereave you of your children. See so what happened is not a surprise. When Elisha calls down the curse, he was calling down what God said would happen to rebellious people. And Bethel is the center of rebellion. But I need you to understand, and this is where we start to get more to the nature of God, that as much as God is a God of love and grace and forgiveness, don't miss this, He is a God of wrath. He is a God of wrath. Sin... Sin is not just that which separates us from God relationally. It's not just that thing that kind of gets in the way. You know, like bad breath or a bad hair day. You know? You all have those friends. I, I had a friend several years ago who just loved garlic. And this particular person could not handle garlic. I mean, it came out her pores and her face and her, and her breath and everything. I mean, if you were within 10 feet... You could smell it. You knew. And she, she ate it by the handful. I'm not talking about my wife. I'm talking about someone else. No, I really am. She just ate it constantly. It was her favorite 
thing to eat. I think she ate it raw. I think she was just chewing down garlic. And it was hard to be around her. That's not what sin is. Sin is abhorrent to God. Sin is detestable to God. He cannot abide sin. Period. Which is why Jesus and the Father were separated at the crucifixion. Because God cannot stand sin. And the Bible is absolutely clear on this. And yet, we live in a relational, emerging kind of mentality in the church that kind of says, oh, sin's bad, but you know what it is? It's just, it, it just causes us a breach in relationship. And, and that's, that's the real issue. No, the real issue with sin is it's abject rebellion, and God hates it and cannot abide it in and of himself. God's wrath, though, is not just an Old Testament thing. God's wrath, my friend, my friends, is an end times warning and a promise for a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. These boys were ripped into reality, and this world is going to be ripped into reality. You think the mauling by two bears of 42 young lads is bad? It's not going to come close to what's going to happen in this world. This story is in part contained in Scripture that we might be reminded yet again that God is a God of His Word. And yes, He is also a God who is capable of great wrath. Well, thank goodness Jesus never portrayed that, you know. At least we got Jesus in the New Testament with the love and the grace and, and really kind of dials it all down. Does He really? Listen to this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. I've told you about these cities. There were three of them. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They were a, a, a loop that Jesus traveled between these three. Right there in the region of the Galilee, not too far from each other. He went from one town to the next to the next. And the vast majority of his miracles and teachings happened in those three cities. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile country, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum. Capernaum. I love Capernaum. It's one of my favorite places to visit when we go to Israel. It's a beautiful little seaside town. It's ruins now. But you can walk the streets of these ruins. You can go to the synagogue in which Jesus taught. Stand on the floor on which he stood. And just imagine what a picturesque pastoral place this was. And about Capernaum he said, You will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Does it get more harsh than that? How would you feel if I told you, listen, if you don't repent, you're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You are going to burn. You go, oh, it's going hellfire damnation. He's getting on the bandwagon. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, After all, 
It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. This world is going to be ripped into reality. A judgment is coming. A judgment that has been proclaimed long ago just like the judgment was proclaimed in Israel and happened at Bethel. That even the beasts of the field will come and tear your children apart if you rebel against me. And Bethel is the center of rebellion. Does that give me some sixth sense of self-righteous pleasure? Yeah. All the unbelievers are going to get toasted. <laughs> they're going to burn. And all of us saints are going to fly. Well, they're burning. Ah, it's just going to be great. Nothing makes my heart break more than the thought of people missing grace and instead receiving wrath. Which is why I'm talking about this right now. It is not my rightness that saves me. It is His grace and His grace alone. But I refuse to diminish God's grace by demeaning His judgment. Because the God of wrath is also a judge. He is a strong Father. And gang, without judgment and yes, even wrath, grace is cheap. If it's just about getting back together with my bud, then what is the cross? This story reveals the nature of God's wrath. But again, don't miss this. It also reveals His passion for Israel's salvation. What do you mean? God didn't want to wipe these people out. This story, though difficult to read, is a severe warning. For as bad as the mauling of these 42 boys by these bears may have been, it was nothing compared to the brutality of the Assyrians who just four generations later would conquer a God-rejecting Israel. And it wouldn't just be 42 boys when this happened. No, when the Assyrians came in, it would be all of northern Israel completely demolished as they were led across the desert with fish hooks in their mouths on the way to savagery and slavery and slaughter. And God is saying, stop rebelling. Tear down the idols. Follow me. Stop the sinning. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verse 15 sadly tells us the Lord the God of their fathers sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place but they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his words scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy they were ripped into reality the clear biblical understanding of Father God as capable of both wrath and grace is absolutely vital to us because it goes to the core issue of human life and Christ's work on this earth what do you mean? gang my God is not the God of the Bible as he chooses to divine and reveal himself guess what's at stake? eternity is it's not just about different perspectives or ideas of who God is If we don't understand Him as revealed in Scripture, we risk 
salvation. Oh, maybe not your salvation so much as we in, in the church tend to like to play around a little bit with God or the nature of God. But I'll tell you what, you may risk someone else's salvation by not declaring God as He declares Himself. Rick, why are you so upset about I get upset about this stuff. Because I see what's going on. I, you know, several years ago, uh, I remember President Bush was talking about terrorism. And one of the newscasts, they were getting on to him about going in Iraq and all the different things he was doing. And I remember him saying, you don't see the things that come across my desk. So you, you don't hear the reports that I get every morning, the intelligence reports, that I can't even tell you about. Why, why did this man become so changed? Before 9-11, he was a pussycat. He was soft. He was reading the children on that morning. But something happened that radically altered his whole mentality. They call it the Bush Doctrine. And I'm not here to proclaim the good or the bad of President Bush or get into the political, but the point is, he sees something on a daily basis that has him concerned enough to do what he's doing. And that's where I am. And I'm not saying you can't see what I see. It's not it at all. But I see and read and hear about things on a daily basis that drives me back to the Word again and again and again to say we have got to stay true to what God has said about Himself. It's interesting. Elijah's mission was his name. I said that a few times. Elijah's mission was his name. Elijah's name meant Yahweh is God. And he came in there thundering, Yahweh is God. Not Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech. Yahweh is God. Well, Elisha follows him. Guess what Elisha's mission was? His name was his mission as well. Elisha's name means God is my salvation. Put it together. Yahweh is God the God of my salvation. Jesus' name was also His mission. Yahweh saves. Literally, Yahweh saves. Yeshua. The Yah is for Yahweh and the Shua for saved. John 14.6 Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So the choice was Israel's two she-bears or the entire Assyrian army. Which do you prefer? Because of His great love God was trying to turn Israel from the tide of their own destruction in this brief little story. And by the way, that's why he sent Jesus to the cross. Only this time it wasn't other people's kids, 42 of them mauled. It was his own son. And what happened to Jesus on the cross was a complete and full outpouring of the wrath of God. Nothing was held back. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Les and I talk a lot about the Father heart of God. And if you ask Les, what is his life mission? It, he, that's it. The people would come to know the Father heart of God. Which resonates so much with me as well. I don't believe you can see the Father heart of God better at any time in history than when Jesus hung on the cross. 
Because at that moment, the Father poured His full wrath on His Son to save us. Because He loved us that much. No wonder the psalmist wrote, Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Let's bow for a moment. Father, we revere you. And we pause this morning as as much as through Jesus we love to get up into your lap. And we love to feel your gracious arms around us. And we love to just be in your presence. We pause also to acknowledge, Father, that we have a great fear of you. Not, not afraid because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus if in fact we've given our lives to Him. But a holy and righteous fear. An awe, Father. At Your grandeur. At Your greatness and Your splendor. And we are just so amazed that You chose to reveal Yourself to us at all. But that You did it in Jesus. Father is our most eternal blessing. And we thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking our place on the cross. And for receiving the full weight of the Father's wrath. That we might be cleansed of our sin. That the very thing, Father, which is abhorrent and detestable to you would be removed from us, our filthy rags... So that as Isaiah said, we could be clothed with garments of salvation. Oh, Father, thank you and praise you.